you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for joining us. A lot to get to on the show. Let's jump right on in. We're starting with a reconsideration of L.A.'s cultural heritage. The city announced today that it's joined forces with the Getty Conservation Institute to launch the African American Historic Places Project, citing the fact that only 3% of L.A.'s recognized landmarks are connected to black history. The goal of the project is to address that disparity and also work with local communities over the next three years to identify and preserve spots throughout the city that represent that heritage. Here to talk more about this, we have with us Ken Bernstein, Principal City Planner and Manager of the Office of Historic Resources, and also Susan McDonald, Head of the Buildings and Sites Department at the Getty Conservation Institute. Uh, Susan, Ken, uh, let's start with you, Susan. What prompted the launch of this project? Well, hi there. Um, well, I think the motivation for the project is that we know that there are many communities whose history and heritage goes unrecognized or underrepresented and therefore un underconserved and undercelebrated. Um, and this is really, you know, I think universal and commonplace um, in many countries and certainly in the States. But it was really the confluence of the political situation and um, more specifically, the, the really horrendous um, murders of George Floyd, George Floyd and um, Breonna Taylor and so many others, um, and the, the, the subsequent uh, large-scale response that we saw across the states that really sort of focused so much attention to the fundamental issues of social injustice and racism more generally. And I think that, like many sectors, um, the cultural heritage sector really recognised the importance of taking a good, hard look at ourselves in terms of what, we do, what we're doing and how we do it and whose heritage is being recognised and, and who we're doing it with and how conservation played out. And um, I think along with that reckoning was really a feeling of wanting to act to see how our own biases and processes and policies might be contributing to this but what could we do to, to change course and how might we be able to contribute to change in the rectification of these social injustices okay. and anti-racism, specifically through better, better understanding and conservation of historic heritage places sure, and specifically sure. African-American heritage places, which are so underrepresented, as we know, across the U.S. Ken, on that point, when was it noticed that only 3% of local landmarks had an African-American connection and, and how did you determine that? Well, thanks. It's great to be with you. Um, I think we've known for some time that there has been a significant disparity uh, in that regard. Um, I think a number of organizations, including the Los Angeles Conservancy, have been taking a closer look at those numbers with us over the last year. And I think it's about we have about 40 sites out of more than 1,200 uh, local city historic cultural monuments or local landmarks that reflect associations with African-American history. And clearly that does not equitably encompass the richness and diversity of the African-American experience in Los Angeles. So uh, we had uh, in collaboration with the Getty um, undertaken a citywide historic resources survey project, Survey LA, that's been a decade long effort. And as part of that created a framework of uh, African-American history historic context statement for, for Survey LA back in 2018 that identified a range of potential resources that could be could be designated based on their significance, whether to the civil rights movement or local businesses, association with African-American architects, um, cultural institutions in the, in the community. But we know that many uh, additional sites would be eligible and we need to have that, uh, you know, intention yeah. and the dedicated resources to take that next step. Ken, do you think the city should be a little embarrassed that it's only 3% considering African-American history in LA? Yeah. I think we're recognizing that uh, we 
oh, and, uh, and, and that we need to be much more intentional and uh, really take a critical look at our policies and practices that have led to this disparity. And uh, that's part of this project and really looking at uh, you know, unintended consequences perhaps that uh, you know, we're requiring research and documentation for nominations that privilege, privilege communities that have the resources to spend time and money on preparing nominations. We have an open process, but uh, that may have led to some of those disparities. Also, when we're considering properties for designation, sometimes they've been uh, rejected because these buildings may have had alterations that lead to an erosion of what we often call architectural mm. integrity. Um, that you know, if they've been significantly altered, maybe they have not been approved for designation, even if those kind of sequential not, uh, alterations may speak to the multiple layers of history, history at a site. So we want to re really critically re-examine all of those policy and practices and traditional standards as part of this program and uh, really rectify those uh, disparities. We're talking to Ken Bernstein, Principal City Planner and Manager of Office uh, of Historic Resources. Also, Susan McDonald, Head of the Buildings and Sites Department at the Getty Conservation Institute. Uh, Susan, how will the community be involved with this process? Well, I think I'd um, defer to, to Ken to, um, to answer that question, but I would say that it's absolutely fundamental that the local communities um, are engaged in this process really from the outset because um, one of the challenges with, um, as Ken was just saying, you know, one of the barriers to better recognition the, the greater diversity of history is that communities haven't always had a seat at the table and being able to tell their stories. And, to, and so this is really important that, that we can um, have access to and spend time understanding uh, these the, the stories that these communities can tell us, but also understand how they would like them to be told and, and to be working with them to reveal different aspects of significance, which, as Ken said, might not always reside in the physical fabric of a building, but might relate to the way a place is used or other practices or, or cultural events that might be associated with it. Mm -hmm. But um, as I said, I'd, sort of defer, I'd defer to Ken to talk about how the community processes might work, because this is something that the, that the city has done in the past, but it's yeah. also going to be re-examining how we move forward in the future. And Ken, tell us about that, because I know you're going to be searching for a project leader and you're going to get an advisory committee together. So what will you be looking for in the person that you choose to lead this? Well, thanks. Uh, I think we're looking for a project leader who has an understanding of and experience in uh, African-American history and heritage, uh, a knowledge of Los Angeles and its uh, diverse uh, African-American communities, and the ability to really work uh, across very a number of communities and do uh, deep and very robust uh, community engagement with that type of experience. And we all we will be assembling a project advisory committee representing a, an array of constituencies, uh, community-based organizations, cultural institutions, and others across Los Angeles. And what we want to do is work really from the bottom up, that this is not meant to be a Getty and City top-down. Uh, we're going to impose our view of what heritage is in these communities, but a grassroots-driven effort um, and uh, the development as well, uh, in addition to the historic designations of three, what we're calling cultural preservation strategies in very localized communities that have been historically African-American neighborhoods of the city. Those will be determined between the project leader uh, and collectively with the advisory committee and the buy-in of these communities to again, go beyond just historic designations to look at an array of broader tools that we might uh, use to help celebrate and interpret cultural heritage in these neighborhoods, such as yeah. mapping cultural assets more generally, looking at the people who make up these communities and the, the importance of not only buildings, but the people in those areas, um, as well as uh, cultural traditions and practices or legacy businesses that have um, been important commercial anchors for many of these neighborhoods yeah. and developing a strategy that weaves all of that together uh, and extends beyond the traditional historic preservation toolkit. And, and Susan, what might be a landmark for one person may not be so for another. So what criteria should be used to make that decision? Well, I think what the cultural heritage sector's got better at understanding is that um, the significance of a place or the importance of a place can 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 be can um, 
can inhabit different aspects of it. It might be the physical fabric, as Ken said, it might be the social practices or the use of the place. So I think the criteria have now expanded beyond the sort of normal criteria of architectural significance or historic significance um, and, um, to also recognise intangible aspects of, of, of heritage as well. So understanding how to uh, identify, record and, um, and then go on and celebrate social history is increasingly important. I think it's true to say that social significance isn't something that we've been, well, I think we've been, be get it, been getting better at identifying it and recognising the importance of it to communities. Hmm. But what we haven't worked out as quite as well is how to conserve that and celebrate it um, so that sometimes these sort of criteria that require uh, specific levels of authenticity for physical fabric might be less important than finding ways to sustain certain okay. uses of place or practices or um, activities that go on there. Ken, one last thing, you know, space in LA is so valuable, especially since we have problems with affordable housing and a lack of green areas in the city. So how do you balance the immediate needs of a particular community with the need to more fairly represent history? No, that's a great question. And we deal with that uh, every day in Los Angeles and city planning and how we weave historic preservation into our larger planning policies. So that's why it's really critical that this be a community-driven process, that we work very closely with communities, listen to local communities. This is really also building on the broader work. We're part of the city planning department in the Office of Historic Resources, and we've established an Office of Racial Justice, Equity, and Transformative Planning in response to Mayor Garcetti's Executive Directive 27 on racial equity that was issued last year. And that's looking more comprehensively at how land use planning and zoning practices have reinforced environmental injustice, racial segregation, health outcomes, open space issues, really taking a holistic look at all of our policies. And we see this new initiative, thanks to the generosity of the Getty and the extension of this partnership with the Getty, we really welcome this opportunity to weave historic preservation and cultural resources into that larger discussion that's taking place in the city. That's L.A. City Planner Ken Bernstein. He's also manager of the Office of Historic Resources, as well as Susan McDonald, head of the Buildings and Sites Department at the Getty Conservation Institute. Uh, Ken, Susan, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. More Take Two coming up in about 60 seconds. Don't go anywhere. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day -day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. Yeah, <laughs> I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm e. Martinez. The COVID-19 pandemic has shed new light on substandard care in California's nursing homes. But some of the facilities were failing patients and their families long before the pandemic. In a new investigation, Immediate Jeopardy, KPCC reporters found that a nursing home operator deemed unfit by the state has been allowed to continue operating 
and even expand. Joining us now to talk about their story, which published today are our investigative reporters, Aaron Mendelson and Ellie Yu. Ellie, let's start with you. Uh, tell us what you found in your investigation. Yeah, for several months, Aaron and I have been digging into the business practices of a nursing home chain called Renew Health, based here in Southern California. Well, it turns out Renew is connected to at least 26 nursing homes across the state as owner, operator, management, or in administration. Last year, state health officials denied Renew's founder and CEO, Crystal Solarzano, licenses to take over nine existing nursing homes. It's an unusual step. Officials cited a long list of serious violations at her chain's facilities, including alleged rape and substandard care and concerns about Solorzano's character. But due to what advocates call a, quote, completely exploited licensing process, Solorzano's businesses are still operating those nursing homes today. Wow. Aaron, tell us more about what types of violations and character concerns we're talking about. Sure. So over a three-year period beginning in February 2017, regulators documented 128 federal violations at Solorzano's chain of nursing homes, including more than a dozen in the most severe category of immediate jeopardy. That's when the government determines a situation is so dire that it caused or is likely to cause serious injury, harm, impairment, or death to a resident. One expert told us 128 violations, that is way off the curve. These facilities connected to Renew and Solarzano provide care for about 1 in 50 of the state's nursing home residents, but they are responsible for nearly 1 in 10 of immediate jeopardies in California since 2019, according to our analysis. And so when Solarzano uh, applied to take over those nine nursing homes, the state denied her those licenses, citing her facility's track record of harming patients. The California Department of Public Health also charged that when Solarzano applied to be a nursing home administrator, she submitted a fraudulent college transcript. Wow. Ellie, t take us through the work that went into this investigation. Yeah, our investigation draws on state records, court filings, government databases, and dozens of interviews we did, including with former Renew employees and people who had family members die after staying in Renew-connected facilities. We saw that across the 26 facilities connected to Renew, nearly 200 people have died from COVID-19. One of those was David Carrillo. He died in April of last year. David got COVID at Villa Mesa Care Center in Upland, which is a facility connected to Renew. David's sister Cynthia told us Villa Mesa failed her brother. You know, all the years of loving on him and taking care of him, and then you place him in, an, in a place where you're thinking they're going to do everything they can and live up to what their standards are of, you know, oh, we're going to take care of your loved one in reality that didn't happen. In a wrongful death lawsuit against the facility, Cynthia said that when she went to visit David in late March last year, she saw that staff weren't wearing masks around him. David died about three weeks later. He was 65. We're joined by KPCC and LES reporters Ellie Yu and Aaron Mendelson uh, talking with us about their new investigation titled Immediate Jeopardy. Aaron, you found the state denied Renew Health and Crystal Solarzano's licenses, but they're still running those nursing homes. So how is that possible? Yeah, so it turns out the California Department of Public Health licensed denials, they're not the final word. Uh, Solarzano has appealed those decisions, and in the meantime, her businesses continue to run those nursing homes. An industry expert told us that in California, no doesn't really mean no when it comes to decisions like this. Tony Chicatel is an attorney with the California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. Here's what he said. California has, in a sense, rolled out the red carpet for bad providers. Hey, it doesn't matter if you're a bad provider in California, you can once you can get in the building, you can be a squatter and they can't get you out. And that means in the case of Renew, uh, an operator deemed unfit by the state is still responsible for people's care. And Ellie, Crystal Solorzano, uh, the CEO of Renew, what does she say? Well, she declined our request for an interview, but a spokesman provided a statement in response to a detailed description of our reporting. It said, quote, Ms. Solorzano is fully qualified to own and operate nursing homes and, in fact, has specialized in acquiring troubled facilities and turning them around to preserve and maintain critical bed space that would have otherwise been unavailable during the pandemic. They did not respond to questions about the fraudulent college transcript. All right. So she didn't talk to us, but she has been posting on social media. Yeah, on our Instagram account, which has about 11,000 followers, she shared a number of posts that had misinformation about the COVID vaccine. One post repeated the falsehood that the vaccine changes your DNA. 
Another said, quote, the COVID vaccine should be avoided at all costs. When we shared her social media posts with Dr. Michael Wasserman, who's part of the California's Vaccine Advisory Committee, he told us. It's unconscionable that someone who is is in a leadership position in a nursing home or a nursing home chain would do this. Aaron, what about the California Department of Public Health? I mean, I think a lot of people who depend on nursing homes to care for their loved ones assume that the state is providing some sort of oversight. The department also declined multiple requests for interviews. In a statement, they defended their process. Uh, They said they're following state law. In California, an aspiring nursing homeowner can take over a facility first and then apply for a license to operate, no matter what their record is. Advocates tell us the the department has done an extremely poor job of providing oversight. Charlene Harrington is Professor Emeritus at UC San Francisco. She also headed the California Department of Public Health's licensing and certification efforts back in the 1970s. She told us the department... They're, you know, not even enforcing these basic laws like, uh, like you're talking about denials of licensing, which is so easy to enforce. They, they live in complete fear that some of these nursing homes are going to get closed. Part of the problem, she says, is finding new places for vulnerable patients to live. Some legislators have started to take note of these issues. There is now a slate of reform legislation that has been proposed in Sacramento. It's designed to fix some of the problems exposed by the pandemic. But any reform effort would likely face stiff opposition from the nursing home industry. That's Aaron Mendelson and Ellie Yu. Aaron, Ellie, thank you very much. You bet. Thank you. We have much more from their story, Immediate Jeopardy, including a list of nursing homes connected to Renew. That's on our website, LAS.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. All right, just a heads up. We were going to have Orange County District Attorney Todd Spitzer on the show today. Got a little bit of an issue with the tape, just a teeny tiny little issue. It'll be smoothed out by tomorrow. So Todd Spitzer tomorrow instead of today. But coming up next, can California one day produce 100% clean energy? Well, one idea is to cover thousands of miles of the state's water canals with solar panels. That's next when Take Two continues. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. Now with more take two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Ian Martinez. All right. Here's something for you to think about. By covering the 4,000 miles of California's water canals with solar panels, the state could save 63 billion gallons of water annually. Plus, the renewable power generated from the solar panels could help California reach its 2030 decarbonization goals. Now, that's according to a recent feasibility study published in the journal Nature Sustainability. UC Merced Distinguished Professor Roger Bales is co-author of that study, and he's here now. Now, welcome. I, I, you know, I just mentioned some of the study's findings, uh, Roger. Can you elaborate a bit on the research that went into the study and what your analysis found? 
Well, California has toyed with the issue of putting solar over some of our built infrastructure, mainly the, the water canals for quite a while, but it's never quite penciled out. So we took another look at the economic feasibility and the other benefits that may not have immediate economic value in a market economy. And we looked at several sites across the state that could be candidate sites to start with, but also to get a range of behavior across the state. And it pretty much pencils out all across the state that there's net benefits from putting solar over water, over canals, as opposed to over land that is taking agricultural fields or natural lands out of their current use and converting them to to solar. And one of the big benefits I can think of has to do with making more of the space we have, because I know one of the big issues for California's clean energy goals is figuring out where to put, say, windmills and solar panels that don't use up land that encroaches on endangered species. Well, it's sort of analogous to you putting solar on your rooftop instead of in your backyard. Right. You can still use the land for other, other purposes. And given the goals that have been articulated by both the California uh, governor and the president, for setting land aside for its natural value, it just makes sense. One other thing, Professor, when it comes to putting the panels over the canals, would it help in keeping the water there? Does it get hot enough where some of this water evaporates and we don't wind up using it like we want to? Absolutely. Based on studies that have been done in India and our own calculations, we estimate that some of the current designs would reduce evaporation by about 40 or 50%. However, we've we've talked to some companies in the business and they say that with their new designs, they can do even better than that. Saving 63 billion gallons of water annually, as I mentioned earlier, Professor, what exactly would that mean? How, How many, say, acres of farmland would that serve? How many people would it serve? That would be enough water to irrigate about 50,000 acres of farmland. And you can bet that water would be in high demand It could also serve the water needs of of about 2 million people based on some of the coastal urban low water use values that that we're seeing in California. But it's also the the iconic value. Can you imagine driving down Highway 5 or across Highway uh, 10 or Highway 8 and, and seeing these canals covered with solar? I think that really catches the attention of people in California that the state is serious about meeting its decarbonization goals. It would be quite the sight, I think, Professor, to see them all shiny as you're going up the five freeway or down the five freeway. Or, or being able to charge your electric vehicle using solar oh, over, over over these over these canals. We're talking to Roger Bales, Distinguished Professor of Engineering at UC Merced and also co-author of the report entitled Energy and Water Co-Benefits from Covering Canals with Solar Panels. Now, we, uh, the feasibility study, uh, you mentioned that it was conducted by researchers at UC Merced and UC Santa Cruz. So how exactly feasible is this, uh, Professor? It's one thing for you and I to be talking about this, and it sounds like a great idea, but economically, how feasible is it? You can look at it two ways. In our analysis, with with the benefits that we were able to assign numbers to, it does pencil out in terms of net present value. Now, obviously, that requires a site-by-site evaluation to do that. But then when you add in some of the social benefits that the market economy doesn't capture, I think it really goes much, much more favorable. Plus, right now, there's opportunities. The state and federal government are looking for what should be our infrastructure investments. And decarbonization, you know, renewable electricity, I think is some of the low-hanging fruit that's out there. So I believe there's several things coming together right now that haven't come together in the past. That is, you know, the opportunity to invest in infrastructure, the awareness of taking into account some of the externalities and, and, so, and so social benefits of going with renewable energy and just just the you know the, the excitement of of moving toward a more sustainable future. What about the actual putting in of the solar panels uh, technologically? How feasible is that to, to create this? Because we're talking about miles and miles and miles of solar panels over um, over water. So I'm wondering, you know, just just the the plane. How do you do it in terms of actually installing them? Well, you you've seen solar panels go up over parking lots before. So it, it's a similar idea, okay. although it wouldn't necessarily involve completely rigid structures. You, you can do suspension with cables. But also when you build it over 
disturbed land versus natural land, the permitting process should be a little more streamlined. So basically you need to get financing in place. You need to get the owner of the land on board with it. Mm-hmm. You need to do an evaluation of just how wide is it, how, how, what's the structural supports that you need, what's the technology you're going to use for the solar. And, and by the way, you know, the cooling benefits, some of these solar panels that are being installed now and, and some of the ones that may be envisioned here generate more electricity when they're cooler. And so the cooling effect of, of the canal needs to be taken into account. And then you have to decide how you're going to use the electricity. Are you going to use it locally? Or do you need to get it into the grid? So if you need to get it into the grid, that might that might be a little bit longer planning process. But my view is that these things can be planned and designed within you know within a small number of years, so, you know, within a three-year period, and then you could you could start building it within that period too, depending on the complexity of the uh, arrangements. You mentioned all the potential economic benefits down the road. Up front though, uh, Professor, how much would this cost to, to get uh, to get the ball rolling on this? Well, you need, you need to get the planning and design studies done. So that's gonna cost the same as you know, building any, any structure. You've got to get an engineering team evaluating it. And then, you know, these are not complicated structures. I don't see their cost being that much different than some of the solar installations that are being built now. So we're talking for a prototype project, I think in the low millions of dollars to to really move this to the stage where we can then scale up from that. Professor, if this if this works and, and everything works out exactly as everyone thinks it might, could you see this happening all around the country, different uh, waterways all around the country having solar panels on them? Well, I think the low-hanging fruit here is in the semi-arid western U.S. So I, I think some people in Arizona are just as interested as people in, in California in this. It's just, will the pieces come together? But I can see it happening across the western U.S. That's Roger Bales, Distinguished Professor of Engineering at UC Merced and co-author of the report entitled Energy and Water Co-Benefits from Covering Canals with Solar Panels. Professor, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, moving on. A group of California state lawmakers accused trucking companies of misclassifying their drivers as independent contractors during the pandemic. Cap Radio's Nicole Nixon reports. Labor union leaders and a trio of Latina Democrats say the misclassification means drivers who carry cargo from Oceanside ports haven't been able to get paid sick time or unemployment. Senator Maria Elena Dorazo says in some cases, companies make workers pay unemployment insurance taxes, which should be paid by employers. In addition to this systemic wage theft, the pandemic has unveiled how misclassification has left this largely immigrant workforce without a safety net. Durazo and two other lawmakers are running separate bills to crack down on the trucking companies by increasing transparency over disputes and withholding clean transportation grants, rebates and incentives. A lobbyist with the California Trucking Association said in a statement that the bills will only hurt California's climate goals and worsen supply chain bottlenecks. In Sacramento, I'm Nicole Nixon. Kemp Powers, he wrote and co-directed Pixar Soul, which got nominated for Best Animated Feature. He also got an Oscar nomination for writing One Night in Miami. Kemp Powers is having one heck of a year. We'll hear from him when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. 
Now with more take two on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you find your podcast, Sammy Martinez. The film One Night in Miami follows a meeting between four African-American icons back in 1964 at a Florida hotel that allowed black patrons to stay back then. Those men were Muhammad Ali, then known by his birth name Cassius Clay, who had just won the heavyweight title. And there was also singer Sam Cooke, NFL player Jim Brown, and a Muslim minister named Malcolm X. The film has been nominated for three Oscars, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Song, and Best Supporting Actor for Leslie Odom Jr., who portrayed Cook. We profiled the film for the first time back in January, so we're bringing you the interview once again. Now, here's a bit of the trailer from One Night in Miami. After the fight, we're all coming back here for the champs victory party. Don't be late. Minister Malcolm X. Good news, the chariot is coming. You know I'm the greatest. That's right. Jim Brown takes the ball. Your record is going to stand the test of time. How's everybody feeling tonight? All together, yeah. <laughs> Oscar-winning actress uh, Regina King makes her directorial debut with One Night in Miami, and it's written by Kemp Powers, who adapted it from his own play. Powers is also the co-writer and co-director of the latest Pixar film, Soul. Kemp, welcome to Take Two. Thanks for having me. Wow, take us back to that night in 1964, because I don't know if many people know that these four men got together the way they got together. So why did they get together in the first place? Well, they were friends. I mean, uh, ostensibly, I mean, three of them were there to support their friend Cassius Clay, who they thought was going to upset Sonny Liston. Um, You you know, I, I first discovered this, God, it was over 15 years ago. I was reading this great book about the intersection between pro sports and the civil rights movement that focused on Muhammad Ali. And there was one paragraph that just mentioned that that's February 25th, 64, when Cassius Clay beat Sonny Liston. Um, no one thought he was going to win, of course, but he did. I'm the greatest thing that ever lived. I don't have a mark on my face. Yes. And I upset Sonny Liston, and I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. I told the world. And he went back to his good friend, Malcolm X, who was a mentor of his at the time. Um, to his hotel room, and he spent a quiet night in conversation over bowls of vanilla ice cream with um, Malcolm X, his other friend, Sam Cooke, the singer, and um, Jim Brown, the football star. And the next morning is actually when he first announced to the press that he was a member of the Nation of Islam. And it was uh, shortly after that that he would become, change his name, and become the man we know as Muhammad Ali. So discovering that moment was just like, dynamite going off in, in your brain. I mean, for, <laughs> for men who represent so much to, to not just my generation, but, but several different generations, um, you know, icons and the idea of them, not just being friends, but like being there on what was a, a crucible moment, not just for Cassius Clay, who was going to become Muhammad Ali, but for Jim Brown, who uh, within a year would be retiring from the NFL abruptly um, while filming the, the Dirty Dozen and starting his acting career. And Sam Cooke, who had just recently recorded for the first time, a change is gonna come and uh, was going to be dead by within just a few months of this night. And of course, Malcolm X, who we all know was just weeks away from breaking away from the Nation of Islam and all who would also be um, assassinated um, just a few days before the one year anniversary of this night. So it, it seemed like perfect grist for, um, uh, a drama. At one point, uh, Malcolm X looks at the other three, uh, you know, boxing champion, football great, musical star, and says, you all could move mountains without even lifting a finger. So what did he mean by that? He meant that their influence um, didn't require, you know, physical exertion, physical activity. Their influence so transcended that. I mean, this this came on the heels of him recounting a story about how Sam Cooke just using his voice, um, his voice being both a literal and a metaphorical thing. Um, was able to move an entire crowd at a concert, even though there was no sound. What I what I love about the scenario is that it's not difficult to make the stretch and say, if you look at who Muhammad Ali would become, it's very easy to, to see him as an amalgamation of all three of those men, hmm. of Malcolm X's politics, of Jim Brown's 
physical prowess and athletic ability and of Sam Cooke's swagger. So, <laughs> you know, it's a, and, and, and the reality of that night was that Cassius Clay was 22 years old. So he was the baby. So I, I very much wanted to structure this as like the kid brother who's about to make one of the most important decisions of his life and his three big brothers kind of fighting a bit, so to speak, over over the, the destiny of, of their of their kid brother. Look, Alexander the Great conquered the whole world at the age of 30, and yeah. I conquered the world of boxing at 22 <laughs> without sustaining so much as a scratch. That's right. There he goes. You do the math. All right. When, when is this party going down? Yeah, that's a good question. What's on the agenda, Malcolm? Well, I thought this would be a wonderful chance for us to reflect on what's happened tonight. Like our young brother said, there's no denying that greater forces were at work. You mean no one else is coming? Well, rest assured, my brother, you're not missing anything. You know, the power of people in sports and pop culture, I mean, the power just seems to have grown over the years. I'll never forget, uh, Kemp, a, a very famous picture. Uh, it's called the Cleveland Summit, and it had uh, Jim Brown, Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, one of the greatest uh, basketball players of all time for the Boston Celtics, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar sitting at a table with microphones talking about a lot of the same things that athletes talk about today. Um, how do you see black athletes and artists using their voices now? Because it seems like a lot of the seeds of that were were sown years and years ago yeah and it seemed like there was a period of time when athletes maybe because of the the promotional um endorsements and stuff got a lot quieter and didn't use their voices and didn't realize the power that they had for a number of years um and, and it's actually encouraging that that seems to have changed in a dramatic way i mean you you mentioned that summit which was is now known as the ali summit which was actually organized by jim brown by the way um, and he'd held it at his Black Economic Union, which was something that people didn't know, is that the whole time that Jim Brown was in the Cleveland Browns, his Black Economic Union was devoted to giving business loans to Black-owned businesses. So so he knew the, the power and influence he would have. But now you see athletes like LeBron James, who to me are like the, the, the second coming of that generation of athletes. So for a while... I think, uh, you know, I, I know I wondered if like, wow, do, are athletes ever going to realize again how much power and influence they can have like the the Jim Browns and the Muhammad Ali's of old. And it's actually encouraging to, to see um, a, a new generation of not just athletes, but musicians and performers and, and, and a lot of people who have so many ears being less afraid to use that platform. We're talking to uh, writer and director Kemp Powers. Now, One Night in Miami ran as a play in the Rogue Machine Theater in L.A. Uh, it's uh, one of a handful of L.A. drama uh, critics' uh, circle awards. Then you took it to London, where it also played on stage. To me, it would have sounded right off the bat as something that would be perfect for the screen, but did you plan on adapting it for the screen? No, not at all. Actually, I, I envisioned it as a play, and honestly, I didn't even think at all about adapting it into a film. At the time, I was uh, just getting my career started as a playwright um and and initially people did come to me very early on and and at and inquire about optioning it to which i said no for, <laughs> oh, for quite a while really and <laughs> yeah and and it was just coincidence that within a few years my playwriting career had started morphing into a film and television writing career so as i kind of develop a new set of skills as a screenwriter i started thinking like oh now I could envision what I couldn't envision before, which is how I would tell this story <laughs> as a film, which is actually quite different than how I would tell it as a play. And once I could see how I would do that, that's when I became, I think, a lot more open to the idea of, of adapting it. Now, how did you get on the radar of uh, Regina King? Well, I had already written the script, the, the screenplay. And, the, and that's, um, you know, credit to, the, to our great producers who, you know, we, we knew that in adapting this, we were really excited about working with a, a director who, you know, this would be one of their first features under their belt. And so I think that was kind of like what they went out to the agencies with when they started their director search. And just through dumb luck that one of the first directors who did get her hands on it was Regina. Not only was she one of our first, she ended up being easily the best candidate because while she was, this is her first feature film, she'd had tons of experience um, directing television programs. In addition to that, we all know she's got more than three decades worth of experience as uh, one of our finest actors. So if, if we were going to be successful in doing this story, that's it's, it's, it's so much driven by 
conversations that these men are going to have in the room in these tiny, small moments. Uh, I think we were lucky to have a director like her who's not only just gifted technically, but also has an incredible touch when it comes to working with individual actors as well. You think about movies and TV, especially right now in 2020, 2021, they have a tremendous ability to really to really change the narratives of our history. Uh, what do you hope this film contributes to the collective understanding of black history in America? Wow, that's a big question, man. Uh, what do I think? <laughs> well, honestly, what I what I really here's here I could say what, what I really hope that it contributes is that young people see and understand that the people that they deify, that they lionize, the heroes that they read about in their in their textbooks, were actually just young people just like them. They were they were human beings. They were young men who actually didn't know what they were doing. Um, were scared. Ex experience doubt, experience all the emotions that are naturally the emotions that a human being would feel, and they did it anyway. Because all these great movements, all this great change is always gonna be brought about by young people. And I think that by turning them into gods, turning them in, into these icons, it actually makes them seem further away. And I hope this film helps young people see themselves as closer to these icons and capable of bringing about as much change as each of these four men were able to bring about in their lifetimes. Ken Powers is the writer and an executive producer of the new Amazon movie One Night in Miami. He's also the co-writer and a co-director of the Pixar movie Soul. It's on Disney+. Plus. Ken, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, moving on. Long Beach's city council is expected to approve a plan tonight to convert the Long Beach Convention Center into an emergency shelter for migrant children in Border Patrol custody. It would temporarily house up to 1,000 minors. These kids will be in a congregate care setting, which is really not the ideal situation for children, but it is so much better than the alternative. That's Lindsay Toslowski, executive director of Immigrant Defenders Law Center, which represents migrant children. The emergency shelter will house kids and teens that have been held at overcrowded border facilities. Now, ultimately, the goal is to connect them with family or sponsors in the United States. Toslowski toured a similar shelter at the San Diego Convention Center. She says there may be opportunities for the community to provide things such as crafts or sports gear for the kids. But as far as their medical and psychological needs, that's the federal government's responsibility. Long Beach's city council votes on the plan to convert the convention center tonight at 5. All right, in closing today, a West L.A. photographer is among the winners of the prestigious Smithsonian Magazine Photo Contest. The honor goes to Matt Stassi for the photos he took of the Black Lives Matter protests across Los Angeles in the wake of George Floyd's death. KPC's Olivia Richard spoke with a photographer about what he felt, experienced, and captured on the city's streets last summer. Last summer, millions of people across the country took to the streets. And in Los Angeles, outrage over the death of George Floyd spurred demonstrators to speak out against police violence. Photographer Matt Stassi was there documenting the protests in downtown L.A. He told me he could feel the urgency coming through his lens. Everyone wanted justice for, for what was, you know, what is going on. There's no was about it, what is going on. It was just powerful to see 
everyone coming together. That was the one thing that uh, really stood out. Stassi recently won recognition for a black and white photo he captured of a Hollywood protester named Guy Peel wearing a mask bearing the words, I can't breathe, a phrase Floyd uttered more than 20 times. It was a raw nerve, so I was capturing a lot of anger, a lot of pain. After, you know, hundreds of years of people being marginalized is not is an understatement. It, it just was just coming out. You know, a lot of pain, a lot of, a lot of anger, just people trying to get their voices heard, um, but always, always, always dignified. Stassi said after the death of George Floyd, it felt like the whole world was watching. And this week... As Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer who killed George Floyd, enters his second week on trial, the world continues to watch. To see Matt Stasi's award-winning photo of Guy Peel, along with uh, others that he took throughout last summer's protest, just go to LAS.com. That's L-A-I-S-T.com. All right, now about the events last summer. The trial of Derek Chauvin continues. He's the former police officer charged in the death of George Floyd. For two weeks now, arguments from the prosecution and defense have been broadcast around the country and include some very painful and potentially triggering content. So we want to check in with you, our listeners. If you're following the trial, tell us why you're doing so and how you're feeling. What kinds of conversations are you having with family and friends about the trial? What significance will the jury's decision have for you? Call us and leave us a message on our voicemail, 626-583-5281. That's 626-583-5281. Tell us your name, where you're from, and how we can reach you. You can also share your thoughts with us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Take Two. That's at Take Two. All right, that number two more times, 626-583-5281, 626-583-5281. Mention you can find us on Twitter, at Take2. You can find me there as well, at LA. That's at LA, and that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take2 is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next. <laughs>